Heavenly Father, we're reminded this morning as we bow together in this sacred moment, this moment that was designed by you, this moment that is a gift from you, this moment where we take the, the breath of our life, which is only because of you that we live. God, thank you today that we have the experience and the opportunity to surrender everything we are and everything we have to you. God, what an awesome opportunity. I know that in the life of our church, we have, we have members who are struggling with health issues. We have members who are, who are struggling with emotional and mental issues. The stresses of this world are pressing upon many people in our church, maybe some who are here in this audience today. But God, thank you for drawing us to yourself. Thank you for drawing us into your presence. Thank you for calling us to give our lives back to you because you've given them to us. Thank you for calling us to lift up our praise, to lift up our glory to you. God, we continue to do that now through listening to you speak to us through your word. And as you speak to us, God, we want to be obedient and we want to, again, say to you, God, I surrender all. Everything I am, everything I have is yours. So take us to your heart right now. Help us to block out the things of this world and be focused on worshiping you through your word. In Jesus' name, we continue to worship now. Amen. But if you're here today and your children are still with us, feel free to take off back to your place of worship. And um, <clears throat> we appreciate a church which allows our children to share worship time with us. And then they go and they study the same thing that we're studying. They, they worship around the same portion of Scripture that we're worshiping around. And when you go home today, you can ask them questions that they will have heard similar to what you have heard here today. And we're blessed to have an environment here like that. <clears throat> well, a couple of months ago, we started our journey through the book of Colossians. For those of you who are new here today, um, Colossians, in a nutshell, <clears throat> is all about Jesus. Lifting up the name of Jesus, laying our lives down before Jesus, taking up the lifestyle of Jesus, and that's where we find ourselves today as we come to chapter 3 of the book of Colossians. And so if you have a Bible, open it up there and follow along with us as we just kind of unpack this and walk through this, this passage again today and continue where we left off, where Morgan left off last week. This past week, and especially today, is, is today is one of my favorite days of the year. I mean, I just have to tell you, I love today. I love getting that hour sleep back that we gave up last spring, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to see some bright eyes here today because you've had that extra hour of sleep last night. I'm going to get mine tomorrow. I didn't get mine today, but I'll get it tomorrow. I'll catch up with you. But I'm excited about that. I'm also excited about the fact that this past Tuesday, we had the opportunity to celebrate an incredible day, uh, Reformation Day. Uh, it was the day that we're reminded of that on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther boldly put his life 
and his reputation on the line to march to the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and nail to the door of the church there his 95 theses. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, aspects of this bold act of Martin Luther was the fact that it helped fuel what we know today as the Protestant Reformation. Among other grievances that Martin Luther nailed to the church door that day was the argument against the stance that the Roman Catholic Church uh, had of practicing uh, indulgences rather than trusting Jesus alone to provide salvation and forgiveness. Martin Luther felt that it was critically important for repentance to take place and faith to be received by the grace of God into the life of an individual rather than doing something to pay for the sins that you've committed. And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to unpack that as we move through our text today. He taught that new life and forgiveness comes by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ Jesus alone. And that seems to be the springboard for the whole uh, book that we call Colossians. But today we'll deal specifically with one area of what it means to experience new life in Christ. Most of my life I have been privileged to... I don't know, to just be blessed. I mean, it seems like every step that I've take along, taken along the way in life, I've, I've, I've been blessed. Sometimes things haven't gone the way I wanted them to, but it turned out on the backside of that to even be a blessing in what I thought at the time was a negative kind of thing that happened. Uh, I was fortunate, for example, to play football on a very successful high school football team. We went undefeated my junior year and only lost one game my senior year and because of that uh, I was recruited to play college football I may not look like it today but I did back then I'm telling you uh, but I played I played quarterback and defensive back in high school and when I went to Furman it was I was blessed because freshmen were not allowed to play varsity football we had our own football team uh, and we played our own schedule and the year of my freshman year I got to play every game, and we were undefeated, uh, and it was awesome. But then came my sophomore year. My sophomore year, I went up to the varsity, and listen, friends, I couldn't make this up. We literally had the longest losing streak in the nation. There was a radio program called Leonard's Losers. We were featured every single week in Leonard's Losers. Not something to be proud of, but a reality. At the end of that sophomore year, our coaching staff fortunately resigned. <laughs> and a new coach came in. And a new coaching staff came in. A new system came in. And everything about football on the Furman campus changed. Radically changed, just almost overnight. Uh, in fact, the, the first year that the new staff came, we were 8-3. and three. Uh, a few years after I graduated, we actually won the national championship for the NCAA uh, Division II uh, football program in the country of, of, of America. And it was, it's just awesome. And by the way, it's not in the script, but if you look at the record this year, uh, there's one team in South Carolina that only has one loss, uh, and that's Furman University. So anyway, back to the script. Uh, <laughs> 
Colossians is an incredible picture of what it looks to compare the old with the new. And that's what we're going to do today. Um, a follower of Jesus puts away the old worldly way and habits of life because we put on a new way of living that is established not in our own strength, but in the strength of Christ and Christ alone. Last week in Colossians chapter 2, Morgan reminded us that, uh, that there's more to new life in Christ than just putting on a new outside. If you have mechanical difficulties with your car, remember he reminded us, you don't go to the car wash <laughs> to wash that away. You don't go to the body shop to paint it away. There has to be some internal change that takes place inside that engine to have a new, a new life with that engine. For a follower of Jesus Christ, old worldly things are put to death and we're raised with a new life in Christ. So what does that look like? What does it look like to be alive in the newness of Christ? That brings us to Colossians chapter 3. There are four things we want to look at today from this text. First of all, believers live in Christ with new desires. We have new desires. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 says, If then, that could be translated since then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This term, raised with Christ, is a critical doctrine in the Christian faith. See, you cannot be a Christian without putting your faith and trust in God who came to this earth and lived as a man, lived a perfect life, came to sacrifice his life for the payment of your sins and my sins. He died on the cross. He shed his blood to pay for your sin. And then he was placed in a tomb. And on the third day, what did he do? He arose from the grave with victory over death. And so to be a Christian, you have to put your trust and faith in the power of the resurrected Christ Jesus. And when you believe, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul says, you die to the world and are raised with Christ by the Holy Spirit, to live a new heavenly life. So what does that look like? Well, new life means that you put off the old worldly way of living and the way of thinking, and you put on a new way of thinking and a new way of acting. The perfect picture of that is baptism. In the picture of baptism, when we go to the baptism pool and someone follows Christ and makes a profession of faith in baptism, there are two pictures that are critically important there. Now understand this. Baptism does not save you. Baptism is not a part of the salvation experience. The water does not wash away your sins. That's not the purpose of it. It is a picture of what's already happened in your heart, already what's happened in, in your life. And when you go down under the water, you're saying, I'm dying to the old way of life, to my old nature, my old way of life. And when I come forth, I'm coming forth with Christ to walk in a new way of life. Another picture is so critical. Baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
And when you come up out of the water, you're saying, I'm devoting my life to walking the rest of my life with Jesus, in Jesus. Just as he came up out of the water, I'm coming up out of the water, resurrected to walk in a new way of life. So we have three things because of this being raised with Christ. We have a new power, we have a new authority, and we have a new identity. Here's the way the new power works. With Christ, when we're raised with Christ, we have a new power over temptation. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the baptism of Jesus. What happened to Jesus immediately after he was baptized? Well, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, led him into the wilderness to be tempted. He was tempted in three particular ways. He was tempted, number one, to turn stones into bread. Number two, to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. And number three, to take over the kingdoms of the world. Jesus could have done all three of those, but he knew that anyone, or especially all three of those, would have destroyed his purpose for being here. His purpose for being here at that time was not to be spectacular. It was not to reveal his messianic identity. It was not to take the kingdom of this world by force. That wasn't his purpose at that particular time for being here. Now don't miss this. Jesus overcame those temptations because he had a higher purpose in life. He overcame those temptations to show you and me that just as he had power over temptation, you and I today, in him and in him alone, can have power over, that tempt over any temptation that comes our way as well. Are you aware that there was not a day in the life of Jesus that he was not tempted? Every day he was tempted. Every day you're going to be tempted. But when your life is in Christ, when you have been raised with Christ, the power that he displayed over temptation is your power. You have that same power in him and in him alone. So since we have been raised with Christ, we now have a new power. We also have a new authority. Uh, when, uh, when, when we have a new authority in our life, that means we choose to step out from behind the control of our life and we allow him to take control of our life. He becomes our new authority in life. Uh, also, at that particular point in our life, death no longer has authority over us. Jesus won the battle over our strongest enemy, over death. So we no longer have uh, to worry about death having authority over us us. A couple of weeks ago, I, I did a, a funeral service for one of my best friends, a guy who's invested in my life physically as a doctor, and he actually died with cancer. But guess what? It was a celebration when we shared an experience together that we call a celebration of life. It was a celebration to know that he was just transferred from life on this earth into eternal life because of the authority that Jesus Christ has over death. You have nothing to worry about. So 
you have a new authority when you put your life in Christ. Thirdly, you have a new identity in Christ. That new identity in Christ uh, gives you the opportunity to realize that you live in the world, but you don't live of the world. You have a new citizenship, a dual citizenship, one in heaven as well as one here on this earth. Uh, we're in the world, but not of the world as part of this heavenly citizenship. So believers in Christ have, have new desires. So Paul says, since we have been raised with Christ, we seek the things that are above rather than spending all of our time and our energy and our resources on the things of this world. Here's what C.S. Lewis said about this in Mere Christianity. He said, I cannot, by direct effort, give myself new motives. After the first few steps in the Christian life, we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can be done only by God. After you become a believer in Christ, why would you want to try to live a victorious life on your own when you have the identity of Christ to give you the power, to give you the authority to live that new life in Him? So believers have a new authority in life and a new identity in life. That leads to the second thing it looks like. Uh, to be alive in the newness of Christ. Believers live in Jesus with a new focus. With a new focus. Now this is similar, but very uh, a little bit different. In verse 2 he says, Set your mind, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died and in your life is hidden, in your life is hidden with Christ in God. So this picture of being buried with Christ comes back to the surface again in Paul's mind. After becoming a believer, what does it mean to set your mind on Christ, on things that are above? Well, it means that you choose to focus life on Christ. Our, our vision statement here at the church, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's very clear. It says, to know Jesus and to make all of life about Him. That's what it means uh, to be alive in Christ. It's like, you know, light, if you, if you put something under light, it warms up whatever that is a little bit. But if you put it under a laser, which is concentrated light, concentrated thousands of times over, then it'll burn up. It'll burn everything up. It's, it, and that's what Paul is saying. He's saying be laser-focused, focus First of all, away from the things of the world so that you can focus on the things that are heavenly. You've probably never heard the name Helen Lemel. Helen Lemel was born over 100 years ago in London. She, she grew up in the home of a, of a very successful banker. She had everything that a lifestyle of a very wealthy person a hundred years ago could possibly have. Early in her life, her dad died. And when her dad died, it just rocked her world. And she sought comfort. And she found that the only comfort that she could have in her life was to give her life to Jesus and trust Jesus as her Lord and Savior. 
And so she gave her life to Jesus. She spent her early life giving things away to people and to causes to help underprivileged people. And then she spent the last two-thirds of her life answering God's call to share Jesus in uh, the country of Algeria with Arab Muslims. Here's what she did. She gave away every penny she had. She spent every ounce of energy she had to lift up the name of Christ. Here's what a biographer said about her. Through the very hardest thing in her life, God brought her soul into blossom. Has that happened to you? Have you come to the place in your life where you've laid everything on the altar and said, God, all that I have, all that I am, belongs to you? Helen Lemel wrote a lengthy kind of essay, and the essence of it said this, Turn full your soul's vision to Jesus and look and look and look to Him. And a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from Him. And the divine attribute by which God's saints are made will lay hold of you. For He is worthy to have all there is to be had in the heart that He has died to win. And out of that thought, she wrote this hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. When you're around someone that you respect spiritually, you probably act a little bit differently than when you normally do. I know Morgan shared a couple of weeks ago about when we play golf, we'll play a couple of holes with people, and about hole four or five, they'll say, you know, what do you do for a living? Morgan say, well, we're pastors. <laughs> and you should see the change in the demeanor and the face of those golfers. What did I say? What if I, why didn't you tell me earlier? You know, that kind of thing. We seem to act differently when we're around people that we respect spiritually. And that leads me to the third thing in verses 5 through 9 of this passage. Believers live in Jesus with a new morality. A new morality. Verse 5, he says, put to death. That means kill, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I would pray that you would never have to feel the wrath of God in your life. It's not a pretty thing. I'm not sure how you feel about the wrath of God, but the wrath of God is real. And as Paul wrote this letter to his church, that he loved in Colossae. He had never visited most of the people that received this letter. He had been in that region, but he had never been to this particular church. But he loved the church. He loved the Colossian church. And it was out of a spirit of love 
that he shared God's truth with the members of that church. You know, it, it wasn't like he had, you know, a sledgehammer in his hand wanting to beat them down. That wasn't the picture at all. He, he was humble in the way he shared the truth in love with this church. As I stand before you today, I want you to know that I am humbled by a passage like this. I am just moved with compassion because I love this church. I love our community. I love our nation. I love our world too much to water down the truth and not speak the truth, but speak it in love and with compassion. And that's what I see Paul doing here. See, when you become a believer in Jesus, you're called to kill the old ways of life. You're called then to come alive in the new way of life in Christ. If you're here today and you're married, it's critical that you keep sexual intimacy sacred and healthy in your marriage. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 is very clear about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a great prescription for marriage. And it's, it's critically important that you keep your marriage healthy. Um, if you're not married, it's essential that you keep your life pure. That you stand before God every day and you're pure before God and you're pure before people who look at your life in this world. See, the standard for morality is different for believers and non-believers. Believers have a higher standard. Believers are called by God to honor your body, to honor the institution of marriage with all integrity. And killing sinful habits and worldly ways should be normal to the believer. Every day we should pray, God, kill any spirit in my life that is not godly, that does not re reflect your glory shining through my life. That includes killing any form of illicit sexual relationship. That includes anything that leads to any illicit, illicit sexual relationship like pornography. Kill it. There's no place for it in the in the believer's life. And that includes killing crude sexual jokes and anything that would take someone's mind away from the glory of God produced from your life. Again, before knowing Christ, you can't help but have sinful thoughts. You can't help but have sinful ways of life because that's human nature. But when you take on new life in Christ, there's a newness about your thoughts. There's a newness about your actions. There's a newness about eradicating anything that is hinting toward idolatry or anything that you put ahead of God, including your sexuality. Take it out of your life. Cut it out of your life. Kill it, Paul says here. Anything you desire that takes the place of God as your highest priority is idolatry. And he's saying, with every ounce of love and compassion that I have in my heart, 
Get it out of your life. Don't let it be part of your life. Kill it. Biblical Christ-centered morality looks different from the way of the world. That's the point here, the standard of this world. No form of sexual perversion is blessed by God. Can I say that again? No form of sexual perversion is blessed by God. In fact, sexual perversion will bring the wrath of God into your life and upon a church and upon a nation and upon a world. You can't expect to play with fire and not get burned. So beware the wrath of God in these matters. I recently sat at a table with five other men. And one of the men was greatly distressed. He threw out on the table in tears. He said, guys, I've got a tough decision. I can't decide what to do. He said, my daughter is engaged and is planning a wedding with another woman. Conversation went around the table about how much we cared about him and his wife and how much we loved him. And finally, after a little while, everybody looked at me and said, Ronnie, what do you think? Would you go to the wedding? I said, do you really want to know? <laughs> do you really want to know what, I, this is what I think I would say and I would do. Yes, we want to know, Ronnie, we want to know. What, what, what would you do? I said, there are two reasons why I would not go to the wedding. Number one, two people of the same sex cannot form a marriage in God's eyes. It is not a biblical marriage for two people of the same sex. Marriage is designed by God and is blessed by God when one woman and one man commit themselves for a lifetime of sharing everything about their life together. That's what biblical marriage is. And so I wouldn't go because it's not a biblical marriage. Number two, I would not go because for me to go, I would be saying that your sinful way of life, which homosexuality is sin. And I say that with all the compassion of my life, not to beat somebody down, but because it's the truth. Homosexuality in any form is sinful and is against God, is an enemy of God. And if I went, I would be condoning that immoral behavior, that sinful behavior. So no, it breaks my heart, but I would not go. I said, man, I love you, and I'm praying for you and your wife, but I don't think you should go to that wedding because it's really not a wedding. See, just because the world affirms homosexual behavior and a homosexual community lifestyle, doesn't mean it's right. In the eyes of God, it is sinful. And we're called in this passage and everywhere else in Scripture to live above the standard of this world, to not be dragged down by the standard of this world and conform to the image of this world. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a part of encouraging the wrath of God in my life or in the life of our church, or the life of anyone in our world. Believers live in Jesus with 
a different kind of morality, a new morality. That's with our attitudes, with our thoughts, which is where evil starts, and then with our actions. So verse 7, he shifts the conversation to actions, from actions to words. He says, in these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. See, there's a difference in the way the world thinks and talks and the way believers should think and act and live. Um, he talks about bottled up anger. You know, there's a proper way to express anger. Uh, there's a godly way to express anger. Any attempt to deliberately harm another person with words, like slander and that kind of thing, shouldn't be part of the Christian lifestyle. Any deed that destroys the harmony or unity within God's church, within the family of believers, should be put away, should be put aside, should not even be part of our vernacular. And so, again, I say believers live in Jesus with a new morality. If you want to know how to deal with words and how to use your words, just look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, and you'll see that any conversation that you have needs to be direct, needs to be truthful, needs to be honest, needs to be open, and needs to keep as its center uplifting the name of Jesus, elevating the name of Jesus. So believers live in Jesus with a new morality. And that leads us to the fourth thing that I believe it looks like to be alive in the newness of Christ. Believers live in Jesus with a new identity. A new identity. Verse 9, you have put off the old self with its practices. Verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So if you take the transition word here at the last part of verse 11, the here, uh, when I diagram this sentence, I laid it out. When I diagram this sentence, the here, I believe, goes all the way back up to verses 1 and 2. He's talking about living in the heavenly realm. He's talking about living in glory. Okay? So he says, here in the realm where you live with Jesus, in the realm where you live in Jesus, he says, there's not Greek nor Jew. In other words, he's reflecting on the racial and national distinctives that we have in our world. Uh, when Gail and I were in the Holy Land a few years ago, we had the privilege of renewing our baptism in the Jordan River. It was an awesome experience. Just over to the left of where we were doing our baptisms, there was a group of Asian believers, a circle of about 20 or 25 believers, who stood hand in hand in a circle and just before they dipped out under the water, they sang a tune that I recognized. I didn't recognize the words, but the tune I recognized 
was I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I surrender all. And I mean, tears just came to my eyes. I mean, it was just, it was an experience I'll never forget because I pictured, you know, this circle of Asian believers who live under the threat of death for putting their faith in Jesus Christ. You think we have it hard here. You think peer pressure's tough. I mean, these people stand with a knife to their throat or a gun to their head to stand with Jesus Christ. And they were singing, I surrender all. And I said, God, I pray that will be the story of my life for the rest of my life, that these brothers and sisters, one in Christ, will be united together in Christ. We are united together in Christ. We're, we're, we're not Greek or Jew. We're not different nationalities or different racial backgrounds when it comes to standing with Christ. We're all in one in Christ. Then he says, circumcised or uncircumcised. This refers to the fact that, you know, we don't work our way to heaven. We don't work for our salvation. It's a gift from God. This new way of thinking and new way of living means that we're reconciled with God because God calls us into his family. And he provides his grace. He provides his faith for you to become a believer. Herschel Hobbes once says, you can't work your way to heaven. And you can't. But if you're going to heaven, you'll be working all the way. And see, the result of our salvation is different from the experience of our salvation. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, here's what you need to know. You can't work your way to God. You can't be good enough to God. You don't need to change anything before coming to God. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. God in the flesh. He died on the cross and shed his perfect, precious blood as a sacrifice for your sin. He died on that cross, was buried, and rose again, and is seated at the right hand of God for you today. And if he's calling you to himself, what you have to do is say, Okay, God, I quit trying. I simply want to trust in you. I want to give all that I know about myself my sin, repent of my sin, turn away from my sin. I want to give it all to Jesus and spend the rest of my life giving honor and glory to Him. It's not about what you do. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision. Barbarian or Scythian reflects the cultural distinctives that we have around the world. And in Jesus, all the cultural distinctives we have. Barbarian for people who didn't speak the Greek language or live according to the Greek culture. Scythians were a tribe of people who lived along the Black Sea and they were good for nothing, according to Josephus. Good for nothing. The worst of the worst. But Jesus said, all of us are one when we come to faith in Christ and we stand at the foot of the cross as one. Slave or free reflects our economic standard. You can't buy your way into heaven. Your new identity in Christ is not what you have, but who you have in your heart and life. And that only comes to you through Jesus Christ. And so Paul wraps it up, and we'll continue here next week, but he wraps it up by saying Christ is all and in all. 
All you need to stand justified before God is a living, true, faith relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you have that living relationship with Jesus Christ, it changes everything about your world. Jesus Christ breaks through all barriers. And when you put your faith in Him, you literally come alive in Him. There's some things that you'll put off that we talked about today. But there's a wealth of treasure that you put on that we'll talk about next week. So believer, you're compelled today to come alive in Christ as He daily pours life into you. He is in us to daily renew us with His hope. And that hope is for a glorious eternity. Our kids today are receiving a caterpillar, a worm. And in the next three or four weeks, that worm is going to go through a process. I mean, we have some flowers in our front yard that thousands of butterflies just fly into every day and fly out, you know, through their hibernate, through their, uh, the cycle of life. But there's going to be a beautiful butterfly that's going to come from that worm. The old is going to be put off. The new is going to fly off into the sunset. There's a struggle that takes place on the, in between time. A struggle that takes place. You may be going through a struggle right now. But I want to challenge you, like Paul reminds us today, to put our faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And then let Him lead us to putting off the old and putting on the new. As I said, we'll pick up right there next week. God, thank you. Thank you that you have loved us with a love that is indescribable. It's really unbelievable. Thank you for the picture that you paint for us in Ephesians chapter 2 of being born into a world where we are dead in our sin and our trespasses and sin, but then... In Christ Jesus, God, you have brought us to life in Christ. It's not by anything that we do other than the faith that you give us, the grace that you give us. But today we want to trust you so that we can put away the things that are leading to death, the things that are old, and put on our new life in Christ. God, we want to be dressed in your glory as we continue on this journey of life. And thank you for reminding us that that's only possible as we continue day by day to put in our faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone, who is all. And in Him, we have it all. God, again, thank you for the move of your Spirit in our life today and help us to apply this part of your Word to every part of our life. In Jesus' name, we continue to worship now.